Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series today, Micah's Message of Hope, with a message titled, Hope in the Pardoning God. So turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Advent is a time of longing, and I like to think that Advent began in Genesis 3, verse 15. That's the promise that God would send the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent. That promise filled the human heart with hope. Not that we would reform our ways. I mean, sin had entered into the human race. Death came with sin. We would have remained without hope in the world had God not promised that he would send a deliverer. And so the only hope this world has is that God would fulfill the promise he has made us to save us from our sins. Now, we've been examining the message of Micah and the Christmas implications found in that book. And we've seen two things. First, that sin is a great deal more of a problem than we ever thought, and second, that the Messiah is a great deal more gracious than we had ever thought. And so it's Christmas. It's a time of rejoicing. Not that the world looks hopeful, but God's promises are hopeful. So let's now return to our study of Micah, completing it today with an examination of chapter 7, which is the last chapter in this book. This last chapter, as it appears, begins with a note of despair. Wickedness is so much more profound than we had thought. Indeed, the consequences of rebellion against the law of God by the nation will result in social upheaval and chaos. I'm reading Micah 7, 1 to 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires." The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You know, Micah, in speaking about the abundance of sin in his country, begins by comparing the present situation to the time of gleaning. Now, many of us miss this allusion, so let me explain. In the Old Testament law, a farmer was forbidden from going over his harvest a second time. He was supposed to leave it behind for the poor and for the alien who was landless. Uh, that, That is, the blessing of the land was not only for the farmer, but also there was to be an overflow of blessing for the less fortunate. And Micah's using that image for the time in which he lives. The culture itself, that is, if justice reigned, would have given people what is right and good, and there would have been something in the culture for everyone, even for the less fortunate. They too would have eaten off the goodness of the land. But there was no goodness in the land. There was no blessing left for anyone. And that, says Micah, is because the godly man and woman has perished from the earth. Now, stop for a moment and just think about how frightening that is. 
See, in any culture, even where there's great wickedness, the presence of righteous people might save that culture. So we might think of Abraham speaking with God, asking if there are 10 righteous men left in those cities that God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah. There weren't 10. The entire culture had collapsed into profound evil, and that's what Micah is saying. The righteous men who would be expected to hold the culture together, they're no more. Evil men now rule the land. And so Micah speaks about a society that has collapsed into evil. Murder is common. Political leaders and judges live according to bribes. He speaks of the great man in verse 3, and that refers to the upper echelons of political leadership the man who has the authority to make decisions. And what does the great man do? They utter, says Micah, the evil desires of their soul. That is, they're in it for themselves, the great men are. And so the very best in the society is like a briar. Briars and thorns tear away clothes and skin. They're not plants that nourish, they're plants that torment. And thus, if the leadership is corrupt, so also are the people of the land. It is best, says Micah, not to trust your neighbor. Indeed, even the family unit itself is broken. Everyone's just looking out for themselves. Micah then ends the section by saying that he's not despairing. He's waiting for God to save him. Advent, longing, waiting, trusting. I need to stop here and ask and answer a fundamental question. Are all cultures as bad as the one Micah describes? And, well, the answer should be simple. I mean, most certainly not. Indeed, when Jesus taught that Christians are the salt of the earth, he was teaching that the presence of the God-fearing followers of Jesus are a preservative protecting a society from falling into complete decay. The presence of those who fear God and do what is right has a great impact in any culture. But sometimes, either a philosophy or a pattern of living so deeply takes hold of a culture that life no longer becomes worth living. The righteous perish. In chapter 6, Micah has said, He has told you, O man, what is good, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. So what are we reading about in Micah? You know, it's the eventual degradation of a society in which all good has disappeared. People care only about themselves and not the well-being of others, nor do they respect the laws of God. And then comes the second section of Micah chapter 7, and it might be difficult to read. Micah will declare that Israel will be humiliated by her enemies. It will be a day when the enemies of Israel, in many ways, they're more wicked than Israel itself, but they're going to be used to harm the nation. These will be difficult days indeed, but as we read this passage, listen also to the hope or the optimism that's deeply embedded in this passage. Micah 7, 8 to 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. Now the last sentence where Micah says that the enemy will say, Where now is the Lord your God? Well, that's the most difficult one to hear. I mean, we remember Psalm 137. That psalm began with the words, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
Now, it's a psalm that you got to feel in order to understand. It's about despair. It's about the remembrance of sins, the horrible thought that Jerusalem now lay in ruins, the fact that they were now a nation of captives. It's almost like they had gone back to Egypt as slaves. And then Psalm 137 says, For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Can you hear the taunt? Sing about Jerusalem, will you? How it is the city of God, the joy of the whole earth, that kind of thing. It's all mocking. After all, those captors had burned the holy city to the ground. Now, Micah, you're going to remember, he's a prophet. And what Psalm 137 expresses was yet to come in Micah's future. But God has shown Micah that Judah will be punished for her sins, that the streets of Jerusalem are going to be trampled down. And given this horrible vision of God punishing Israel for her sins, you might think that Micah would weep uncontrollably with no strength left. But something rises up within him. I will sit in darkness, he says, when the darkness closes in on me. And then says Micah, I know that when those days come, they will come from the Lord. He calls it the indignation of the Lord, the righteous anger of the Lord for the crimes against him. And so in the darkness I sit because I deserve to sit there. And Micah speaks that way because he's now representing Israel. I have sinned. That's Israel has sinned. The punishment is just. And then Micah adds a bright, brilliant light shining in a dark place. Verse 9, I will sit in darkness, he says, awaiting that God will plead my cause and execute judgment for me. That is, God's going to rescue me from my enemies. God's going to advocate for me. Micah doesn't explain how God will advocate for sinful Israel, but he says God will. You know, later as Matthew recounts the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, listen to what he says, Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that's the Christmas story. In the Christmas story, it's not just Israel in bondage to Babylon. It's the human race in bondage to the cruel designs of Satan, who is the ruler of this world. There we sit in darkness, and then in the land of the shadow of death, a great light shone. Jesus born in Bethlehem, and then later on, Jesus beginning his public ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, and driving the demons from the land. A great light shone. What Micah dreamt was yet to come to pass. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came with the grace of forgiveness and the truth which transforms. And your support enables Back to the Bible Canada to sow this biblical truth in a spiritual famine. By your prayers and generosity, God's Word grants light and life to families under stress, seniors isolated in apartments, truckers alone on the road, unbelievers whose hearts and minds are in turmoil. Now the month of December marks year end for charitable donations. This year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are looking to raise $517,000 to reach our year-end budget. We hope you'll stand with us with your year-end gifts. This goal has been set not as an achievement, but as preparation and promise. To give your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. The 
last chapter of Micah is really a chapter filled with hope. You know, the last section of that final chapter depicts the restoration of the relationship between Israel and God. From chapter 7, verse 14, all the way to the end of verse 20, the end of the book, we have a prayer for the people of God and then a declaration, there's no God like the Lord. So let's listen first to the prayer, verses 14 through 17. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when we came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Now, this section would make no sense until we remember that the book of Micah, that's a messianic book. Yeah, the book condemns sin and it pronounces judgment, but it also says that the only hope is that God would be merciful and send a Messiah. And so the passage begins, you know, after Micah depicts the people of God as sitting in darkness, Micah prays. It's a prayer for the coming of the Messiah. He begins by asking God to shepherd his people, lead us to the places of safety. I mean, that's what shepherds do. Shepherds also feed the flock. Feed us, protect us in the future. That's Micah's prayer. Because unless the Messiah does that, we'll simply fall into the same patterns of evil over and over again. See, Micah in his prayer depicts Israel dwelling alone in a forest. So what does that mean? I think that the forest Micah speaks about is the best pasture land in Israel. During Micah's time, that land was occupied by the Assyrians. But Micah prays about a future when the Messiah comes to shepherd his people. Then they will dwell alone in those pasture lands, and no one will drive them out again. See, in that day, when the great shepherd, the Messiah, comes, in that day, the nations that once oppressed God's people will be ashamed of their might. Well, of course they will. They use their might to oppress the people of God. And yeah, it is true that God disciplined Israel through them. But these nations were still responsible for the harm that they did to Israel. In the future, in the days of the Messiah, the oppressors of Israel will come trembling and turn in dread to the Lord. And by the way, you know, when you read this, keep in mind that these kinds of things are said to the Christian church as well. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has a message to the hard-pressed and persecuted church of Philadelphia in Asia. There, the unbelieving synagogue had used their status in law to persecute the helpless believers. And here I'm reading Revelation 3 verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. That's the hope that all the faithful have. It's in Jesus, our Messiah. We may be persecuted now. This may be the day when believers suffer and as such, we're called upon to bear the cross of our Savior. But our Messiah is coming back, and all those who persecute us now, they're going to tremble. Or as Micah says, they will lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears will be deaf. They'll lie on their faces and fear and lick dust of the ground just like a serpent does, and they will be in fear of you. And that is to say, one day the tables will turn. The persecuted will be delivered. No one will make them afraid again. 
Micah's vision is still not over. So here we are in the last section, and I'm reading now Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. See, what a wonderful opening question is this last section of the book. Who's a God like you? Indeed. You might remember Isaiah asking the same question. Or in Isaiah 43, 10 to 12, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. So who's a God like you, asks Micah? Well, let's begin to answer the question, shall we? Psalm 96, verse 5, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All other gods did not create the heavens and the earth. All other gods can't save you in the day of trouble. All of the other gods and goddesses are unable to save people from sins and from the judgment which is to come. No other god sent his one and only son into this world to save us from our sins. Who is a god like you? The answer is not one. Apart from the Lord, there is no God. And then let's complete the sentence, shall we? Who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression? So pause here and ask the same question. Is there another God who takes sin as seriously as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does? Who utterly condemns all acts of sin, even if they're committed among the chosen people? God will not overlook any sin, for all sins are crimes against God himself. And since the one true God is infinitely glorious, then any crime against the infinitely glorious God must be an infinite crime. And if sins against God are an infinite crime, then what could forgive the most heinous of all crimes? But this infinitely righteous God, who has no equals or no peers, he has found a way to pass over transgression. You know, in our imagination, we could conceive of a God who punishes every transgression. And on the other hand, we could also conceive of a God who's lenient enough to pass over sins and mark them as insignificant. But who could conceive of a God who thinks of sins as a monstrous evil, and also finds a way to take ruined sinners and cover over their transgressions. And that's what Micah asks here. Indeed, it's the question of the entire book of Micah. When the Messiah comes, he will bring an end to evil and sin and bring about universal peace. Well, how can such a thing happen? But Micah insists that even though he doesn't explain how, yet he insists it will happen. He will not, says Micah, retain his anger forever. He will delight in steadfast love, in covenant love. You know, those of us who read the New Testament know that Micah could not have known what we now know today. We know how the incomparable God was able to forgive and to remain just at the same time. We know that the answer was all contained in the word hesed the covenant love of God. When the Messiah came the first time, not to bring the nations to nothing, 
but to die on the cross for the sins of every single nation that did evil and raged against Israel. He died for sinful Israel, and he died for the sinful nations that persecuted her. And the wonder of the cross is that it allows two separate and seemingly unreconcilable issues to be reconciled. The cross demonstrates just how much God feels about sin. He who did not spare his only son, that is, if the son should bear the sins of the whole world, the righteous God would cause him to suffer and crush him. The son would drink the wine of the wrath of God Almighty and bear up under such a just and awful sentence. Yeah, the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. But the cross is also a demonstration of the God without equal, who pardons iniquity, who does not retain his anger forever, the God who will again have compassion on us, the God who promises to cast the worst of all of our sins into the depths of the sea, where they will never be remembered again. I mean, you think of it. You know, when Pharaoh's armies were cast into the sea, they never rose again. So also when God cancels out the debt of all who hope in Christ and throws that debt into the sea, it will never condemn us again. Micah's vision brings us to Christmas where the Son of God was born for us, born to deliver his people from sin so that we might inherit a glorious future. Christmas should cause us to ponder these things. God did not abandon us to the judgment that we rightfully deserved. From Micah, let me wish you a Merry Christmas. Yes, we look forward to the final vision of the book, when men beat their swords into plowshares. But we need also to know that God at this time has found a way to forgive us of our iniquity. That is the message of this time of year. Thanks, John, for a great series. But can I ask you to remind us once again the significance of this moment in history when the Christ child arrived to earth? Yeah, I mean, not only did God step into the human race, be found in human flesh, and give his life for us and rise from the dead. I mean, but also we have a objective indication, A, that we're sinners, but B, that Christ came to give his life and therefore we now objectively can say God loves us. See, Christmas is all filled with the love of God who gave his only begotten Son. And had we not know that God gave his Son, how could we know with certainty the love of God? This is the demonstration of God's love. Thanks, John. And a Merry Christmas to everyone out there, to you and yours. And may God bless you in the new year. From your family of Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent his son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The Father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas. We run to it. That's our prayer for you this season. 
On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas. Jesus has come and he remains Emmanuel despite difficult days. <laughs>